We're in Mark 3 today. Before we start, I want to take three minutes of your time to read you something different. This is a passage from Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Now there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said to them, Set aside for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. If you don't know anything about the history of various people groups at that time and in that region, it might sound like a a nice guest list and a a recitation of a, a prayer meeting or a good little story about sending out two missionaries. But if you know the history of that place in that time and you read this list of names that I just read off, you realize that Luke included this part of his narrative for a very specific reason. Because every single one of those people on that list should have hated each other. Barnabas, who was called Joseph. But this man Joseph was such an encourager that the apostles renamed him son of encouragement. So he was hanging out in Jerusalem at the same time that Saul was. He was hanging out in Jerusalem the same time that Saul was, except that they were on very opposite sides because Barnabas was trying to encourage the apostles starting this new church. And Saul was overseeing the execution of one of its best evangelists. And Saul was actively trying to destroy this new church. So the fact that God called these two men together to go off and do his work is pretty amazing. And then going on with this list, we have Menaean, a lifelong friend of King Herod Antipas. King Herod Antipas, he's a gem. He's the guy who put John the Baptist's head on a platter. And yet his lifelong friend somehow ends up as a member of the inner circle of this new church of Jesus Christ in Antioch. Simeon is of unknown origin, but they called him Niger, which is Latin for black. And every single commentary and every church historian and every church father that I've read says that what we know about Simeon is that his skin was black. We also have Lucius, who's from Cyrene, which is in what is today Libya. Lucius was an African. Barnabas, who I've already mentioned, was a Hellenistic Jew. He was from Cyprus. He was from a culture that was actively engaged in a slave trade of Africa. And then you have Paul of Tarsus, who grew up in Jerusalem and was a Jew, but not the same kind of Jew that Barnabas was, because he was a Hebraic Jew and Barnabas was a Hellenistic Jew, and those two groups always didn't get along either. So these guys, with their mix of ethnicities and differing political beliefs, should have hated each other. These men who would have been trained for birth to despise every other person on this list, or at least one of them, to feel superior to the people on this list, to position themselves as more intelligent than the people on this list. They should have hated each other, but they didn't because they embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ and they embraced their status as blood brothers, bound together by the blood of Christ. I cannot imagine what kinds of conversations and possibly even squabbles these men would have had with one another while they were doing this thing. We don't know. But what we do know is that they were so completely sold out for the gospel of the kingdom of God, that they would, and we see it right here, they would eat together, they would fast together, they would pray together, and they would work together, all while being from very different backgrounds and maybe even having some very different ideas on how the secular world should run itself. Guys, one of my jobs as a pastor, and and I would contend that it's my main job as a pastor, is to shepherd people, to, to guide people, to help them mature in their faith, 
to help them create for themselves a biblical worldview, a biblical lens on which they can view their Monday through Saturday lives. And I wouldn't be doing my job well if I ignored the events of this week and didn't mention them. But I also know this about Christ's church. We are given unity with one another as a gift. And we are commanded to pursue unity with one another as a mandate. And that kind of unity, really, really seeing one another as brothers and sisters, which we just heard Jesus talk about, that kind of unity is never achieved through a program in the church. That kind of unity is never, it's not even achieved from the pulpit. It's achieved once you start looking at everything that you do, everything that you do, everything that I do, through a gospel lens. Does this glorify God and does it serve others? That's the whole, that's the whole thing. We say it every week, the summary of the law. Does this glorify God and does it serve others? The unity of the, of the church, the unity of people who are sold out for the gospel of the kingdom of God is not accomplished through programs and it's not accomplished through the pulpit. It's accomplished around a kitchen table or in a living room or in a break room or on two bar stools across from each other. And it takes serious guts because it takes, what, it takes following what Ephesians tells us to do in humbling ourselves to one another and in finding ways to serve one another and approaching one another with that posture of humility before God and saying to one another, we are both part of this kingdom of God. And I think we have two very different points of view on something. And I'd like to talk to you about it. And I'd like to learn what you think about it. And I'd like maybe you to learn what I think about it. And maybe we can learn from each other. And at the very least, we can find a way to come together and to actually be brothers and sisters in Christ. John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Loving one another doesn't mean affirming everything the other one says or does. If my best friend was on heroin and I decided that it would be a good idea for me to go out and buy heroin for him, I'm not loving him. I need to challenge him and I need to help him. That's what love is. But love for one another has to start with humility. I was reminded this morning by... A friend of mine, Chris Bora, who's a priest in our diocese, he's at a church in Beckley, West Virginia, and he posted something on Facebook this morning reminding everyone that the posture of Christianity is a posture of humility, of, of repentance. And it reminded me as I was thinking about it and reflecting on it and starting to cry about it, it reminded me of the G.K. Chesterton quote that I like so much when... Somebody asked Chesterton, what's wrong with the world today? And he paused and he said, I am. The life lived before God is a life of humility. Remember, that's the gospel that Jesus himself was preaching at the beginning of Mark. He said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, so repent and believe in the good news. And the good news is that the king has come, the kingdom is here, and we are citizens of an eternal city that can never fall. And so in this little church of ours, we pray for wisdom, we pray for maturity, we pray for the ability to see beyond partisan idiocy in every form. And I am praying this week for conversations among ourselves, tough conversations, uncomfortable conversations, but please, for the sake of this new church, have those conversations. Find somebody you know you disagree with and talk to them. Humble yourself enough to ask someone. It is hard work, and it takes strength. Humble yourself enough 
to accept the invitation if someone else asks you, please talk, please be the church to one another. Now, let's jump into Mark 3. The gospel of the kingdom of God that Jesus is preaching is the story of the good news of God. It's the kingdom of God, and it's Jesus, the Son of God. And a lot of it is about, as we go through Mark, you'll see, this is a thread throughout Mark, a lot of this good news of the kingdom of God is about defining the borders of the kingdom of God, who's in and who's out. Who are the insiders? Who are the outsiders? That's a lot of what this Mark 3 passage is about. If you have a Bible, please open it to Mark 3. We're going to be going through almost the whole thing. Let me pray for us. God, please use your word to do what you would have it do in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives. Come, Lord Jesus. So, there's a thread that you trace through Mark, and we'll see it again in further chapters, about insiders and outsiders. What does that mean for the kingdom of God? And there's a lot in Mark 3 that we see this identity being shaped by by what Jesus talks about and by how others react to him. You may have heard this before. I, I know I've said it before, and so have a lot of other people smarter than me, but Christianity is simultaneously the most inclusive and the most exclusive religion in the whole world. It is radically inclusive. Who can get in? Who can be a part of this kingdom of God? Literally anyone. In some religions, you can't get in because you're not one thing, or, or you can't get in because you are another thing. In Christianity, who can get in? A billionaire and a homeless man. A black man and an Asian woman. Anyone, anyone, anyone from any tribe, tongue, and nation, rich, poor, old, doesn't matter. A genius or a friend of mine who is almost 30, but mentally about eight. And boy, does she love Jesus. Anyone can get into this kingdom. And yet, this offer, this offer of God's grace to sinners, this forgiveness that Jesus talked about where people would be forgiven for anything except one, we'll get to it. This offer of radical grace, of resurrection life in a resurrected body, living forever in the glory of God, it is only, only attainable through one very specific way. It is not many paths up the same mountain. There's one way to get to God, and that's through the great high priest, Jesus. And in this passage, Mark is showing us a movement that is starting to build. Jesus is traveling around the Galilee. Huge crowds of people are following him. If you know the geography of that area, Mark is talking about all these different areas, and he's showing us that people from all kinds of places are all following Jesus. Jews from Galilee, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Jews from Judea, which is kind of the, the suburbs. Jews from Jerusalem itself. So you've got City folk, you've got country folk. People from Adumia. Adumia is where King Herod was from. And Adumia is where the people who stayed in the land when the rest of, Israel, when the rest of Judah got carted off to, to exile in Babylon. Adumia is the people who stayed in the land. So both the Jews and the Adumians looked down on each other. Each of them thought they were true Israel. And you have Gentiles here. You have people from Tyre and Sidon, which is way up in Lebanon, far on the other side of, of Israel, on the, bridge, on the edge of the Mediterranean. People from all different walks of life following Jesus. Why were they following him? Mark already told us several times, and he says it here again in verse 8. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because the crowd was so big that they were going to crush him. 
because he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And then we have this third instance so far in three chapters of Mark of of what we call the messianic secret. Jesus not wanting yet to, to have it get out who he was. Verse 11, whenever the unclean spirits came out, they fell down before him and they cried, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them to not make him known. And so the crowd following Jesus is gathering. The the movement is growing, and yet Jesus is still being silent about who he is. Verse 13, he went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. What does Jesus do to let people in? Is there, how does he screen them? Is there an audition process? Be very, very good, and I'll let you into my inner circle. No, we see Jesus actually drawing people to him. Jesus draws them to himself. I can't tell you how many times I've read Mark, and I've skipped right over this next part. I mean, yeah, yeah, all the gospel books talk about naming the 12 disciples, right? It's just a list of 12 names. Jesus is preparing them for his mission. This is his team. And so we get a little... We get a little montage moment where each one of them gets named. It's their little Avengers Assemble moment where he's talking about getting the squad together. But I I was talking about this passage in Mark with a pastor friend of mine this week, and he said to me, he said, Jay, Mark 3.14 changed how I view the gospel of Mark, and it changed how I view the Christian life. So I got all excited, and I flipped it open, and I read. Mark chapter 3, verse 14. And so he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles, so that they they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Was it the number 12 that made you rethink everything, or was it the casting out of demons? I just, I was missing what was so profound about this. And he said, read it again. I said, okay. And then he said, why did he call them to him? He appointed 12 so that they might be with him. Oh, he said, yeah. He said, life with Jesus. That's why Jesus called them to him. Life with Jesus. And that's why Jesus calls you. It's what he calls us to so that you might be with him. So that's how Jesus calls us. It's how he shapes us. And it's how he prepared his disciples. And it's how he prepares us. I've talked before about the the historic apprenticeship model of learning, which was basically the way to acquire knowledge throughout most of history up until about 150 years ago. And that that model is where you take somebody who doesn't know anything and you say to them, be with me, listen to me, watch me, see what I do and model yourself after me. And that's literally what being a disciple is in in the gospel term of it. We have a curate up in Harrisonburg right now, Wilson West, and part of a curate's job is that you're supposed to shadow the senior pastor to go everywhere he goes and watch everything he does and to ask questions. You can see this when you, when you go out to eat. Every once in a while, you'll see somebody who'll come up and, you know, hi, I'm Sarah, and this is Ted. I'm training him. And so this guy is just following her around and watching everything he does and trying to be like her. That's apprenticeship, and that's discipleship, and that's what life with Jesus is. Life with Jesus is what Jesus calls us to, and life with Jesus is how we are prepared for mission. And our shared life with Jesus is what unites us to a very, very different group of people. 
I read a list of people from the Antioch church in Acts 13, and there are similar themes in this list of disciples. It says that among them were disciples like, I'll just give one example, like Matthew and like Simon the Zealot. Who's Matthew? Matthew, also known as Levi, was a tax collector. Simon the Zealot was a zealot. The zealots were a group of Jewish nationalists who were trying to reclaim Israel, and sometimes by violent means. So who did the zealots hate? Zealots hated the Romans. Who worked for the Romans? Tax collectors. So you have a Jewish guy working for the Roman Empire, and you have a Jewish guy who hates the Roman Empire, and yet both of them are called to be Jesus' disciples, to be with him, and to do life with one another. How about that? At the end of this section, basically, where Jesus names this new family of 12 brothers, his actual biological family tried to capture him because they thought that he had completely lost his mind. And they are not the only ones. Because the religious leaders, the scribes, are back. The scribes seem to be around a lot in Mark. And yet there's another confrontation between Jesus and the scribes. Another way of of seeing who Jesus is talking about and what he's talking about when he talks about who's with him and who's against him, who's in and who's out. The scribes are coming down from Jerusalem saying, this guy's possessed by Beelzebul, which basically either means, they're not sure, it either means Lord of Flies or Lord of Filth. So either way, not great. Basically Satan. And they say, "In in the name of the prince of demons, he casts out demons. But Jesus says that doesn't even make any sense. That literally makes no sense. Jesus calls them out. And Mark uses, uh, Mark uses this to show us once again exactly who this Jesus is. Because Jesus starts talking about the, the strong man and binding up the strong man. And he's basically making a reference to Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43 says this. Can the victims, can victims be taken from the mighty? Or can the captives of a tyrant ever be rescued? But thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and even the victims of the tyrant shall be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with them, and I will save your children. So John the Baptist, in the beginning of Mark 1, had already said that after him would come someone else who was even stronger. After Jesus' baptism, he was tempted by Satan in the desert, and he proved that he was stronger than Satan. The devil has power on this earth, that is certain. We know that then and we know it now. But the power of Jesus in his earthly ministry, his teaching, his gathering, his healing, and then his death for sins, his resurrection, so that all of his followers might find resurrection life true, that power that Jesus had, that is the real strength. He offered himself once for all so that by his suffering and death we might be saved. And by his resurrection, he broke the bonds of death, trampling hell and Satan under his feet. We say that every week. Jesus came into a world that was full of evil and sin, but he bound up the strong man in his own house. So Satan, is, Satan has power in this world. But when Jesus came, he proved that he was the stronger man. He bound up a strong man in his own house, and then Jesus began to plunder it. N.T. Wright puts it this way. When Jesus now speaks about tying up the strong man and plundering his house, we are meant to understand that Jesus is now acting as the true strong man who has won an initial victory over the enemy at the temptation after his baptism and now is starting to make inroads into Satan's territory. 
That's who we get to do life with. That's who calls us to himself. That's who we get to be with. Life with the, with the real strong man. And so what is to be our part in this life? To watch him. To be like him. To learn from him. And to grow. And to imitate him. To live as he lived. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 5 that we are to be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love in the same way that Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Do that for others. The way that Christ loved you, you go love others. That's what the the therefore is at the end of every epistle. That's what Jesus called his disciples to do. Come, be with me, and I'm going to send you out. That's what Jesus calls us to do. So how do we do that? Well, this actually brings us to the next part in our Mark narrative. How do we do that? Because Jesus isn't here anymore. So we can't walk from town to town with him. We can't feel the crush of people around him. We can't eat a meal with him. So how do we do this? Scripture, prayer, fellowship, and sacrament. These ordinary means of grace that God has given to his people, given to us, so that we can have true and real union with Christ, even though he's not physically present in this room today. And what is the means that God has used to accomplish that? It's the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, who binds all things together in Christ, Ephesians 4 tells us. There's a lot of Ephesians today. I think that's the third time I've referenced it. God, the Holy Spirit, whose role is to point to Christ, whose role is to shape us and mold us more into his icon, into his likeness as we mature as Christians. This Holy Spirit, the one who actually makes Scripture come alive in our hearts, the one who takes our heart of unbelief and unloving stone and who replaces it with a heart of faithful and loving flesh, that's how we, that's how we get to be with Christ. Scripture, prayer, the Holy Spirit praying alongside with us when we don't know what to pray. So, who would say that this Holy Spirit doesn't exist? Who would say that the Holy Spirit doesn't do what the Bible says it does? Who would blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? Those who are against Jesus, those who are out, those who are on the outside. Let me quote from N.T. Wright again in his really great book on Mark from a few years ago. Jesus does add, through a warning, through this idea of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, Jesus does add a warning that has often been misunderstood. So what is this unforgivable sin that he talks about in verse 29? This is Wright still talking. He says that his critics had painted themselves into a corner. Once you label what is in fact the work of the Holy Spirit as the work of the devil... There's no way back. It's like holding on to a conspiracy theory. All the evidence you see is simply going to confirm your belief in its opposite. You will be blind to the truth. It isn't necessarily that God gets especially angry with one sin in particular. It's rather that if you decide that the doctor who's there to perform a life-saving operation on you is in fact a sadistic murderer, you are never going to consent to the operation. But if you do give that consent... You have changed your mind about this. And that's important because this bothered me a lot when I came back to faith 10 years ago. The the, the Greek grammar of this passage tends to show that this blasphemy, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is talking about is unforgivable, is not a, a one-time event where you shake your fist at the sky and say something that you shouldn't. 
it's so, the, the grammar would show that this is actually a persistent action. This is a lifelong posture. This is actually a worldview. When I came back to faith 10 years ago after 20 years of completely wandering in the wilderness, I got really concerned when I read this passage in Mark. What if I had blasphemed the Holy Spirit in that time when I was away from God? What if, what if I've accidentally done something unforgivable? I was legitimately concerned. Then I heard R.C. Sproul talk about this, and I found it so helpful. Sproul basically said, if a person worries that they have committed the unforgivable sin, it's one of the clearest evidences that they have not. For those who committed, those who commit this unforgivable sin are so hardened in their hearts that they do not care that they've committed it. Blasphemers of the Holy Spirit are so hardened against God that they do not care about their sin. So, when we are repentant in front of the face of God, we can be sure that we have not accidentally committed this one sin that is unforgivable. God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit binds us together in love through the shed blood of God the Son, Jesus Christ, to the glory of God the Father. And that is, that is a true family bond that nothing else can break. And we see two different times in this passage when Jesus gets done talking and then he makes sure to help people understand who his family is. Mark illustrates it earlier in the chapter and then it's brought out in in, in dialogue later in the chapter. In verse 32, the crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, "Uh, your mothers and your brother are outside and they're looking to talk to you. Yeah, they, were, they weren't really looking to like have a conversation. They were looking to drag him back home because they thought he'd gone completely out of his mind. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and my brother and my sister. This is our family. This is our true family right here. Life with Christ, that's what each one of us has because of God drawing us to him. We each have life with Christ and we each have life with one another. Jesus said that the entirety of God's law could be summed up in two sentences. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's our family value. That's that's one of the codes that we live by. It's it's part of the resurrection life that God offers to people from every single tribe, tongue, nation on this earth. But he only offers it through Jesus Christ. And I would urge you today, brothers and sisters, to remind yourself of that. To live a life where the, the, the only two things we need to worry about are, does this glorify God and does this allow me to serve my neighbor? And more importantly, anyone who does the will of God, Jesus said, anyone who does the will of God is my mother and my brother and my sister. The underlying foundational thing of doing the will of God is actually submitting to the Lordship of Christ, believing in the Savior, believing in the grace of God, and entering into the life that he offers you. This is what we are called to do. This is what we get to do. This is my prayer for us this week, that we would truly 
remind each other of that, that we would remind ourselves of that, that we would live this resurrection life with Jesus every single day. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.